Welcome once again, wrestling fans, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. I'm your host, Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax. And today, we're going to do another career tribute that is actually not of somebody who is a wrestler. We're going to be looking at the life of probably the second greatest wrestling promoter who ever lived, Mr. Jim Crockett Jr., unfortunately, joining me for this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories, as usual, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. This, though I did not know Jim Crockett Jr. personally, like I did Wahoo, and we did that tribute to, to the Chief, he is extremely important to my fandom of wrestling and my eventual entrance into the business. So this one at a certain level is probably going to be pretty important for me and, and personal for me because obviously I grew up with Jim Crockett Jr. being the guy who presented wrestling that made me the fan that I am. Once again, I hate to have to do these type of shows, but Father Time and, and Death, the Grim Reaper, they're that tag team that nobody ever kicks out of. Eventually, they do the job, so yeah. it is what it is. Yeah, and really, I guess the best way I can put it is you kind of can't tell the story of professional wrestling. You can't really go through the history of pro wrestling without looking at Jim Crockett Promotions and either Jim Crockett Jr. or, or Big Jim. Because right. uh, Jim Jim Jr., he was also called Jimmy to his fans, right? Or to, to his right, friends, right. right? Yeah. Yeah, the, to kind of set the table for people that I, we've talked about it before, but we'll, you know, we'll go over it briefly again. The Crockett promotion, which was started by his father, Jim Sr., or Big Jim, as he was known in the business, was not just wrestling. He was a promoter. He promoted all kinds of things. He promoted wrestling. He owned a minor league baseball team in Charlotte, Harlem Globetrotters. He was a promoter for the Harlem Globetrotters on tour in the southeastern states. Us. Uh, but boxing, some, some minor league hockey, they were uh, concerts, Elvis. They were the Crockett promotion. Big Jim was just a entertainment promoter. He was from Knoxville, Tennessee, moved to the Charlotte area. I believe in the early thirties and just became a promoter and wrestling became the main source of income. Cause it, unlike all those other things I just named did not have a season and be promoted on a regular basis. So Big Jim, Jim Sr. was one of the founding members of the NWA in 1948, though he had been running wrestling in the Carolinas and Virginia since, like I said, the early 30s. I believe his he, they founded his foundation in 1931, which is a non—still around to this day, the Jim Crockett Foundation. I believe it was 1931 or 32 when it was founded, and it raises money for uh, veterans, and it, it's— Still well thought of by a lot of the guys, you know, old timers in this area as a good charity. But Big Jim was very successful promoting wrestling, very well respected, gained a lot of power and respect amongst the other promoters of his era in the NW. And even from the early days of, of the Jim Crockett promotions, the Carolinas territory, the Charlotte territory, was considered like the Cadillac of territory. It was a territory that put a heavy emphasis on, on to use the, the modern term work rate. It's what the fans here uh, enjoyed. So that's what Big Jim promoted and presented. And it was very, very much uh, a place that you knew if you came to the Carolinas, you needed to have your work on, so to speak, as a worker. And as time went on, Jim was always on the bit on the heavy side, J Big Jim was, and he started to have uh, health problems. And well, let me, let me back up. He was married and had four kids, Jim Jr., David, Jackie, and then one daughter, Frances, and lived in a nice suburban upper-class part of Charlotte because he's successful financially. 
And uh, I think all the kids went to Myers Park, which is still to this day a, a fairly affluent public school in the Charlotte area. And all of them followed their father into a business, but not promoters. Jim Jr., I believe, owned a series of restaurants. Some of them helped out with, uh, with other things. Francis, for, for instance, she worked uh, mostly in the baseball stuff. She ran the Crockett Park, which was the, the minor league baseball stadium there in Charlotte that, that the minor league team they own played in. Yeah. And I believe, so, um, uh, if I recall correctly, Francis hired Tony Schiavone to do work there before he she started did. working. She did. Yeah, right out of James Madison University there in Virginia, mm-hmm. where he grew up. But yeah, so, um, so even before he became the announcer and interviewer for Jim Crockett mm-hmm. Promotions, he he was working baseball. Right. I mean, and if you know Schiavone, that's his first love mm-hmm. is baseball. But anyway, the only one of the of the children, or he or his wife, that was actually in the wrestling business outside of promoting was David. And David has told a funny story where his mother had just had put brand new carpet into their home. And it was white, if I remember right, a cream, a very light color. And even back then, the big shows were always Charlotte and Greensboro because they were the two biggest markets in the territory. So David said having the wrestlers in and out of their home all the time was fairly normal. And if you think about this region of the country, we have a lot of red clay. Our, our dirt mm-hmm. is yes. high in iron, so it's very red color. And it stains and apparently there had been a rainstorm, which is also kind of normal in this part of the world. And a bunch of the wrestlers traped into his mother's living room, freshly covered with red mud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was like, that's it, Big Jim. They can't come over anymore. <laughs> and that kind of precipitated his father telling David, I don't understand wrestlers. I'm their boss. I'm signing their checks. But no one in the family is doing this. You actually have an amateur background. I want you to train to wrestle. So we can at least say somebody in the family. So David somewhat reluctantly agreed. And I cannot remember who trained him. But he did wrestle for free as David Finley. Because <laughs> Finley is David's middle name. So he okay. used his real name. Yeah. And of course, you hear that name now when you think Fit Finley. Right. Who is a legit badass. <laughs> yeah. And his son is uh, actually tearing it up in New Japan right now. I don't know if it still is, but I know at one time, Fit was actually an assistant coach for the Irish Olympic wrestling team. That's how good he really is. But Jim Jr., or Jimmy's, he would come to be called. He wasn't a wrestler. He wasn't involved in the baseball. He wasn't involved in the wrestling. He ran some restaurants. But he was a successful businessman in the Carolinas. I, I think the term could be used like renaissance man or you know entrepreneur yeah, or stuff probably. like that. I think that's apt. But in the early 70s, Big Jim, like I said, was a larger man and had had some health issues. And his health took a kind of a turn for the South. So the family began to understand that their dad, for health reasons, probably needed to step away from the, the grind of being a businessman running the promotion. And by that point, Francis had married, I believe he was a lawyer named John Ringley. And so it was decided in a family meeting that John would take over the wrestling promotion. And this, like I said, was like 70, 71. Not long after that happened, they found out that John was cheating on Francis. And I believe, and I could be wrong here, but I believe Big Jim was still alive when the decision was basically, you're no longer running the wrestling company. I think the way David Crockett put it was, John Ringley was basically told, this is a family business and you ain't in the family no more. (laughs) So... Big Jim's too sick to actually take over the running. Wasn't ever really Jackie. I think Jackie's the baby. So I think Jackie always kind of the party one of the four siblings. I think Francis didn't really like wrestling and she was happy with the baseball. So the decision was made that Jim Jr. would take over. That happened right before Big Jim's death. 
And then in 73, Big Jim finally did pass away at 63 to a heart attack. And now there's no going back. It is Jim Jr. or Jimmy at that point on. And one of the first decisions he makes is to change the booker. And I cannot remember who the booker was at the time, but he brings in George Scott. And I know you're a big fan of George Scott and his booking, so why don't you talk about that era and Jim Jr. or Jimmy's early days as running the company in the 70s. Yeah, absolutely. Now, some people, when they hear this, they might wonder why Francis wasn't given the keys to the to the businesses. I know, I know you just said that maybe she just wasn't really interested and preferred doing baseball. It, I think, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that at the time, women owning and running businesses, especially something like wrestling, was still pretty uncommon. And this is around the time when Ray Gunkel passed away and his widow took over running that promotion and was not doing very well. Of course, it was Georgia you're talking about, the Atlanta office. Yeah, it was kind of a, a turf war in Georgia, and Angle was not doing very well. Yeah, and I think fans need to understand, it gets a little confusing here, that at this point, the Crockett's, they were only running the Carolinas in Virginia, and a lot of people confuse that because we'll get to that later when the Crockett's buy out Georgia, but at that time, they were two separate territories. Right. Even though... Obviously, South Carolina and Georgia border one another. And there was nothing to Tennessee because you can go back to, I think it's our sixth episode with the Reverend Dan Wilson, where we talk about the great Memphis split. Tennessee was its own territory Mm -hmm. and often really three territories. It was the one end of the Memphis territory and the other end of the Memphis territory were kind of split between Jared and Goulas. And then Knoxville was kind of its own thing. So just kind of keep that in mind as, as we're talking about the, the, this era in the 70s. You had all these different territories that were butting up on each other, but the Crockett's only at this point in time were running the Carolinas and Virginia. That was the Crockett promotions, the Charlotte office. When you hear old-timers say the Carolinas territory, that's what they mean. The Carolinas right. and – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sam. Right. So Jimmy brings in George Scott, who had already built uh, a reputation as a booker, and – one of the first things they did to the territory is they ceased focusing on tag teams. Up until this point, tag teams were kind of the main attraction. George had known that personally because George and his brother Sandy were a successful tag team under Big mm-hmm. Jim in this territory. Yes. Yeah. Baby faces. So, yeah. Right. So they went in a direction pushing singles titles. This is where actually the creation of the Mid Atlantic United States title comes from. And that is the very same title lineage that WWE recognizes to this day as their WWE U.S. title. So they made their own singles title for their territory and then really in a way of promoting rather than just kind of going through several cities in the territory, they molded the schedule to essentially be bigger shows at, this would have been the Greensboro Coliseum, right? Yes. Yeah. Greensboro, Uh, if you look at a map. And you look about the geographical region I just mentioned, the Carolinas and, and Virginia. Greensboro was probably legitimately right smack dab in the middle, geographically right. speaking. Okay. It just also happened to be the largest venue in that geographical area. It right. was bigger than the Scope, which was the big arena in Norfolk, Virginia. It was bigger than the Charlotte Coliseum in Charlotte. It was bigger than Greenville Memorial Auditorium here in Greenville, South Carolina. It was bigger than County Hall in Charleston, South Carolina. It was bigger than the Asheville Civic Center in Asheville, North Carolina. It was legitimately the biggest venue. You know, it was the home for years 
of the ACC basketball tournament. And when you're talking ACC, that's Duke and North Carolina. I don't think I have to tell many of our listeners, even those who don't follow college basketball, to know that, that historically speaking, North Carolina, Duke, and those schools in that area are perennially national powerhouses in college basketball. You're not even a basketball fan in Utah. Right, you right, know? absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, you're right. It was an idea of big shows. And I also think around this time, because of the success that George was having with bringing in, and like you said, changing the view or the focus off from tag teams to singles, that they had so much talent. I believe around that time was when they started running the, 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 the two loops, a northern loop and a southern loop. Where, where, where I mean is they would run a show like in Norfolk, and on the same night they run a show in like Columbia, South Carolina, at opposite ends of the, of the territory. And that would go on for years, but I digress. You're right. It was the idea, uh, and we, we talked about on our first episode, though, going all the way back to even before Jim Jr. took over, I think it goes back to the late 60s when, when Big Jim was running. Thanksgiving night was a huge night in Greenville. Mm-hmm. So what exactly did George do to really change the focus from tag teams to singles besides just kind of booking it that way and creating the title? Well, the vision, so to speak, was that the territory would now have a more I guess you could say hard hitting. I think some people would say strong style, but mm. that's more of a Japanese right. term. But basically, yeah, more no hard- one knew what that was in 1973. Right. right. <laughs> but yeah, hard hitting, very impactful type type matches. And this is why, mm-hmm. when you look at that U.S. title heritage, who was the first guy to ever hold the U.S. title? Harley Race. Who better to use yep. if you want a hard hitting product? You know. I, I believe, and I think we went over this in our Paul Jones tribute that. To go back to the Greensboro, I don't have to sell you on this, Seth. I know you. Mm-hmm. I think the original crowning of a champion was a one-night tournament in Greensboro where yeah. they brought in talent from all over the country. Yep. And I think the finals were Harley and Paul Jones, I think. Okay. And just to explain for anybody that, that knows me, yeah, I'm a sucker for tournaments. So Tournaments you know, and battle royals, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and tag teams. I like tag team wrestling. So basically, if there's a tag team tournament, I'm watching it. So, so uh, we got so here in the Carolinas we had two of the three. You got to go to San Francisco to get the big battle royal. But right, <laughs> we went over that in our last episode to Pat Patterson. But I digress. <laughs> right. So this is circa 1975 or so, uh-huh. and according to Dave Meltzer, at least what what I had gathered from going through Observer newsletters, the plan was for this hard hitting style, so to speak. They were looking at the top heel to be Johnny Valentine. And mm-hmm. the top baby face to be Wahoo McDaniel for this, right. this type of hard hitting thing. And of course, we all know what happened with Johnny Valentine. This is this is the year he was in the plane crash with Ric Flair, and it mm-hmm. ended his wrestling career. And you have to remember, Johnny Valentine at this point was a very well established national star. He had had top runs in about every major territory. He'd been up north and worked for Vince Senior. He'd had a very successful run in Houston. He had had, and everywhere he went, Johnny Valentine was known as a no nonsense, hard hitting guy. So, yeah. Right. He is one of those guys that is also on my short list of careers to cover. But so much. I mean, of, there's that famous quote that Piper used to talk about all the time was early in his career when he met Johnny in Houston. And he famously told Piper, I can't make them believe wrestling is real, but I can make them believe I'm real. Exactly. Yes. And I think I can say this personally, even 10, 10, 15 years later, when I was really into watching wrestling in the mid-80s, there were fans at the shows that still spoke of the Wahoo-Johnny Valentine matches with reverence and awe at how brutal they were. Yes. 
So with Valentine out of the picture now, this is around the time where they bring in the young up-and-coming guy, Ric Flair. And this was at yep. around the time where Ric Flair had a bodybuilder's physique, if you could imagine that. So, right. you know, he, he and was that was a big completely dude. on Wahoo's suggestion. Wahoo had seen Rick as a rookie up in Minneapolis when he was working for Vern. And he mm-hmm. was the one that suggested to George, hey, this kid's got some potential, bring him in. Yeah. And for those that m- might want to get a good look at what Ric Flair looked like at this time, go see the movie The Wrestler. Not not the the one that came out about 10 years ago, the one, the Vern Gagne's movie <laughs> from the 1970s. <Right. laughs> Which we probably need to do a review of for this podcast Ab- as well. Absolutely. But, and so they start building around the Greensboro Coliseum, I believe it was bi-weekly. And the Greensboro Coliseum is is not small by any standards. It's what, about... 16,000, 18,000. Yeah. So, so I, think, you, I think actual capacity, don't quote me on this. You can check behind me, ladies and gentlemen. If I'm wrong, let us know. I think 16,8 was max seating for a wrestling venue or when they set up mm-hmm. wrestling. For basketball, I think it was like 12. And whenever we talk about these older venues in the territory days, I always like to point out, in case there's anybody hearing this for the first time or hearing some of the old school stuff for the first time, there was no national promotion. There was no national TV, no pay-per-view, no, no, everything was territory, and they were selling out 10,000-seat arenas just based on local TV you would get in the Rabbit Ears TV, usually on a UHF station. And they also worked out a business deal with the Tunnies in Toronto. Yes. As uh, any old-school WWE fan may recognize the name Jack Tunney, that's what he was doing before WWE. He was actually an accomplished wrestling promoter in his own right. Yep. And they ran Toronto all the way down to Buffalo, New York. So now you're seeing Jim Crockett make a business deal that takes them out of the Carolinas. And they're sending talent to up north. This is 1975, 1976. So that predates Vince trying to go national by what, eight years? Yeah. Yeah. Some, something like. And so Ric Flair kind of becomes like I said, the up-and-coming, and then eventually gets to the upper end of the card and becomes a main eventer, and was getting NWA title shots. Right. And around this time, where this is what, circa 1980 or so, I would say, 81. Mm-hmm. And the talk for the NWA World Championship feud was... 80 would have been Harley and Dusty, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, Dusty. Well, Jack Briscoe was still wrestling at that point, too. Yeah, but he pretty much moved into tag teams at that point. He pretty much said, oh. I don't want to be the world champion anymore. I'm going to take my little brother under my wing, and we're going to have mm-hmm. a successful tag team. And they yeah. were a huge babyface tag team here in the Carolinas. Even though they were based out of Florida, they were part owners of the Georgia Territory, they still came into the Carolinas a lot as babyface tag team. Had runs as, as, as a champion. Now, one other name that might be a little bit surprising to fans who grew up watching the 80s, or late 80s, I should say, another guy being primed for this NWA title run potential was Ted DiBiase as a babyface. Yep, yep, yep. And so it, there was a point there where maybe in some sort of alternate dimension or alternate reality, Ted DiBiase was the NWA world champion. But mm-hmm. in the end, the decision in 1981 was to go with Flair because of how well he was working with Dusty. And, yep. and this, this is all precipitated by Jim Jr., by by Jimmy, when obviously when he took over for his brother in law, he was young and he had never been in the wrestling business. So these old curmudgeonly promoters that were members of the NWA board were not that accepting of. Mm-hmm. You're at this point, you're talking guys like Paul Bosch, Sam Mushnick, 
Fritz. Of course, Vern had already left the NWA at this point. Vince had. But Vince, as we've brought up before, Vince's dad still had a lot of stroke in the NWA at this time. Roy Shires. These are the guys, and they don't want to accept this young guy who's never been a wrestler. But because of the business decisions he's made, like the decision, the, the cutting the deal with the Tunnies, and we also bring up around that time, and I can't remember exactly how this worked out, I think a vacuum had been created in Ohio because of Wilbur Snyder and, and Dick the Bruiser's promotion. The WWA, where we talked about in our Bobby Heenan tribute, had started. It was based in Indianapolis. They had quit running Ohio, and so there was a void there. And I think around this time, Crockett made a TV deal with them up there. So they, they were running shows up in Ohio at this point. So they were stepping once again out of the, that footprint of the Carolinas and Virginia. I think just several years of his successful business acumen and the the rising of Ric Flair it's kind of swayed some of the other promoters to, well, maybe we ought to give this kid a chance. And Jim, he lobbied politics very hard for Flair to get that title run, the first one he got in 1981. And Jim Jr. and Flair had developed a very close uh, friendship outside of business, a personal friendship. They were around the same age. They and, uh, and Everybody knows that Flair's the life of the party. You go out with Flair, you're going to have fun. I'm pretty sure Jim Jr. had some good times with Flair, too, to the point where when Flair married his second wife, Beth, who was the mother of Charlotte and Reed, Jim Jr. was the best man at his wedding to Beth. That's the kind of friendship that Jim Jr., Jimmy, had developed with Flair. And he politicked, and like you said, 81 – the decision was made to put the belt on Flair, and we've brought up before, it actually ended in a tie, which precipitated them contacting Vince Sr., and he was the one that said, nah, get the belt to the kid. He was the deciding vote. And I think a lot of that's predicated on the fact that Flair had gone up and worked shows for Vince Sr. in Madison Square Garden at that point. And Vince Sr. had seen the reaction Flair was getting in New York. So by this point, I think Flair has said that he felt like he was set up. Mm-hmm. But they decided to have him win the belt, and he won it from, I believe, Dusty. So we won it from the first time. Yeah, you yeah, know? First, yeah, it was and against it was, Dusty, and, it, and he won it in Kansas City, which was not a big town for Dusty. I think that was a decision that was made out of deference to Harley because Kansas City was Harley's territory and a place where it wasn't going to hurt or help either one of the guys that much. But it was such a small deal. The only guy that Flair took with him when he won that was Jim Junior. Was Jimmy. And he won the belt, and there wasn't much of a reaction, and the two of them went out to dinner afterward and then flew back to Charlotte. But I always figured that it was Flair essentially getting his shot into the big time, essentially making his name in Mid-Atlantic for the Crockett's. I think that's why he felt so loyal to them and why he stayed with mm-hmm. WCW for so long is because of Jim Jr. giving him that shot and essentially putting him on the map. And like I said, I think you have to go beyond. There's a friendship there. You don't ask a man to be the best man at your wedding if you're not friends with him now, do you? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so as time went on now, we're, we're talking 81. Now Jim's got some politicals because now he has the reigning world champion based in his territory. And he's making these good business decisions. So you're looking at this time because of the success of Flair, of getting Flair the world title run and these business decisions – and just sticking to it for the last eight years, now Jim Jr., Jimmy, is getting the respect amongst fans and other wrestling people as, oh, this guy's a mover and shaker. He's a real deal. And I think it was around this time that Jim might have gotten his first run as the president of the NWA. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I want to say it was 81, 82. Right. And, of course, for years it had been Sam Mushnick, who was the promoter in St. Louis, and he was the major domo. And the presidency would go back to him at some point, but I think 
now Jimmy's starting to notice on the Nationals. And I believe it by this point, he brought Dory Jr. in to be his booker because George had stepped down. And they continued to be a hot territory. But the early 80s were not as hot as it had been in the 70s. Flair's gone all the time, so your top star's gone because he's defending the belt. And this is also around the same time of the rise of Tommy Rich, so George is starting to take off, and uh, not long before Dallas took off with the Freebirds Von Eric feud. So the early 80s were really taken up by those two territories being the, the hot territories. But then 1983 rolls around, and Jimmy has gone to Florida and lured Dusty away from Eddie Graham and offered him the book. And it won't be long after Starcade 83, I think it's like early 84, he brings Dusty in as his booker. And that's really when everything starts to change. Because, of course, simultaneous with this, this is around the time that Vincent K. McMahon has bought Capital Wrestling from his father with his eyes set on going national. So I think the stage is set for what a lot of wrestling fans see as the first big glory days of wrestling, which is the big war over going national, which is the two players are the WWF and Crockett Promotions out of Charlotte. And this eventually leads to Vince McMahon famously buying a time slot from Georgia Championship Wrestling, which was on 605 every Saturday night on TBS, which was a burgeoning national overlay cable company uh, out of Atlanta owned by Ted Turner. And it was the Briscoes who sold their percentage of the territory to Vince and Vince takes over. And that is, of course, is famously known as Black Saturday. Would you want to talk a little bit about that era, that time era, Seth? Yes, it uh, was surreal even to this day to look at that because anybody who watched the Georgia Championship Wrestling and for a time it was World Championship Wrestling as well, that you see that same backdrop from the early 80s and then you just see Vince McMahon standing there with with a microphone. And, and is that it, powder, famous powder blue WWF blazer he would wear? <laughs> right, right. And just be, I forget who was hosting at that point. But What uh, truck and Tom Miller? He was the ring announcer in Greensboro and Raleigh. Uh, it was, um, oh, his last name was Miller, but I cannot remember his first name. He's a short, heavy set guy with glasses. But he was a longtime announcer on the old Georgia show with Gordon doing the play-by-play. So... But yes, he handed the mic over to Vince, and there we go. So anyway, sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He says, uh, you know, you're going to have a really warm reception, and really, I think the opposite happened because... As, as old-timers would say, it went over like a fart in church, right? <laughs> right, right. Because just that in Georgia, the style was just completely different. It was a bit more yep. violent, uh, a bit more hard-hitting. And here's Vince with, at the time, was they were basically like, cartoonish superhero like characters showing up and the ratings yep. plummeted yep and then about a year later and in, in 1985 the crockets buy that time slot back from mcmahon for a million dollars and even na- yep. yeah in 1985 you, you can break out the inflation calculators ladies and gentlemen to figure out what that was it comes out to about two and a half million dollars in 2021 dollars and that was yeah. just for essentially the time slot for a two-hour time slot. Right, right, right. And you have to also understand things. If we go, if we refer back to, you referred to earlier, the promotional and Gunkel running Georgia in the early 70s, around the same time Jimmy takes over the, the Carolinas territory. There were the main opposition that Ann had was Ole Anderson. He started his own promotion. Ole, at the time, was tagging with his on-screen brother, Gene, as the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. And they were a reviled heel tag team in Georgia. 
you know, that's another show for another time. But Ole maintained involvement in Georgia Championship Wrestling for years as a booker and as a star with mostly heel runs, but a few babyface runs in there. Well, they were also working in the Carolinas for George Scott and then Dory Jr. So they were actually working both territories. And we've brought up there weren't they weren't the only stars, but it was unusual for stars to work more than one territory back. So there was already a, a foot in the door, I guess, so to speak, for the Crockett's when Turner wanted to get out of this deal with Vince. And here comes Jim Jr. stepping in as kind of like you're a savior. Look, I'll take this. I'll give you this money, Vince. Get it off of your hands. Ted, you'll be happy. You know, Ole works for us, too. He's familiar with the style that the fans will accept. We'll get the ratings back up for your television. And this essentially is the end of Georgia Championship Wrestling because by buying the time slot, Crockett now owns the Georgia Territory, too. So now the Mid-Atlantic Territory has become not just the Carolinas, Virginia. You can add Georgia as well. And this is around the time I remember as a fan really paying attention to the fact that every television show, whether it was the local, the the weekly syndicated Crockett show – Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling that I watched at noon on Saturdays or watching TBS stuff at 6.05 ended with the Chiron having the big logo for presented to you by Jim Crockett Promotions. This is the first time I can remember as a fan realizing, oh, the promoter is Jim Crockett. And though he had shown up before like presenting Flair with the million-dollar check for winning the main event at, at Starcade 84, this is about the time I also think because of the national exposure and the beginning of the war with Vince, we start seeing Jimmy, Jim Jr., make an appearance on camera on a regular as an authority figure. Is it about the right time, you think, too? About 85? Yeah, sounds about right. And by the time they bought that time slot from Vince, the Crockett's actually had already bought out a couple other territories. So they had a lot of other areas. Not yet. They were in the process of doing it. They hadn't done it yet. Okay. Because this is also around the... And you'll have to look up the date for me, but there was an attempt by Mike and a few other guys in Florida to continue on running the, the championship wrestling in Florida after Eddie uh, committed suicide. But it didn't last long. It didn't draw. And Jim swoops in down there and buys out Florida, too. And let's be honest, Dusty's gone and Dusty took all the big stars. <laughs> Florida. They were mm-hmm. they were going to die anyways. But that this becomes, uh, I think, a pattern at this point where Jimmy, Jim Jr., in his attempts to go national, as opposed to Vince's model, which was, screw it, don't care about, I wasn't involved in this gentleman's agreement. I'll just run somebody else's town. I don't care. Jimmy's going more of the traditional route of, oh, I'm not going to break that gentleman's deal, but I'll just step in and buy you out when you're financially hurting, you know? Right. And just, quote, unquote, legally take over your territory. So now you've got the Crockett's owning florida georgia the carolinas and virginia they're still running a little bit in ohio which is bled over into west virginia and basically they, they uh, a good chunk of the southeast essentially yes the, 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 the southern half of the atlantic coast and they have pushed vince mcmahon reach south which used to go all the way to dc and baltimore because we talked about that when we did our show i think it was was it episode three we covered capital wrestling i believe it was episode, three, episode right. four and they had pushed him out of there, and now those were now towns that the Crockett's ran on the regular. They were running Baltimore and, and, and D.C., and those became big cities for the Crockett's. So, yeah, you really had the lines drawn at this point, and this is Jim's business decisions. They did lose their foothold in Canada. 
because around the same time, the Tunnies, for whatever reason, I can't remember. I've heard the story before, but I can't recall it. I think it was money, of course, right? That precipitates the Tunnies pulling out of their partnership with Crockett and throwing their lot in with Vince, which from a geographical standpoint actually kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Right, because Canada's north and uh, New York is a whole lot closer to Canada than Georgia yeah. is. Yeah, they're running Buffalo, but as part of the Tunnies are, and Buffalo is obviously in New York. It's much closer for Vince than, you know, right. than it is for the Crockett's. But this is, like I said, this is the time we start seeing Jimmy, Jim Jr. on TV a lot. And this is a time for fans of newer wrestling attitude era forward they don't understand an authority figure back then was not an evil heel authority. He was seen as neutral at, at best at worst, maybe leaning a little towards the baby face. Yeah. Well, like what, Re- like what William Regal is supposed to be in NXT. Right. Probably the best comparison. And I think he, he probably does the best job of any current guy of, of actually portraying that old school kind of authority figure, you know? Right. But unlike Jack Tunney, Unlike William Regal, this isn't a character he's playing on TV. Jim Crockett really is also the he's running the company, you know, and he you would see him very often. And I think Jim would open him and he wasn't a great interview. He didn't have the charisma his brother David had. You agree with that? Absolutely. And I remember hearing the stories because obviously I was not watching at this point because I didn't even have cable. So the most I would have been able to see is a couple of syndicated shows. But we've probably all heard the stories or talked to people from that time period about how over the top David Crockett was with his support of the baby faces. He was to the baby faces, what Jesse Ventura was to the heels or some, somebody to that, to that regard. And the funny thing is when you look at it through 2021 eyes and you watch some of those old Crockett shows, David Crockett's still better than just about every play by, current. Every, yeah, he's better than just about any current announcer, with the, with the exception of guys like Jim Ross. Yeah, I mean, and he was the color guy because mm-hmm. Shivani was the play by play. And then on the syndicated show, the team was Bob Cottle, who was the play by play, and Johnny Weaver was the, the, the color. Makes sense. The retired wrestler, former star here in the territory under Jimmy's dad, and a famous tag team with George Becker. And that's it's always your color guy's your color guy usually is the retired wrestler. It's so the same it did, within, make, it did it, make sense that David, as a former wrestler, was the color guy and Tony was the play-by-play guy. You right, because right. that happens in regular sports as well. Baseball, football, sure, sure. you name it. I, I, one of my favorite pairings of all time was Howard Cosell and Dandy Don Meredith on Monday Night Football. Cosell was the play-by-play guy and Dandy Don was your color guy because he was former quarterback for the Cowboys. Of course, I just love Don telling, Howard, would you shut up? <laughs> he was saying, and, you know, to, to make an analogy, Don Meredith telling Howard to Cosell to shut up was what so many of us football fans wanted to do, but we couldn't. Well, David was doing the same thing. He was this exuberant guy who was cheering for the baby face. Isn't that what the fans were wanting to do? <laughs> if you want to get a good taste of um, how over the top David could be in the support of the baby faces, I don't think this has been moved over to the net Peacock yet. I, and it's going to, I now have information that all the archive stuff will eventually be made over. It's just taking time. Go back and watch the old 605s so you can see these moments when Jim Jr. would come out and be that authority figure. But look up any regular TV match Ron Garvin had. And he would invariably put the guy in a, in a sugar hold, which is, you know, an old stretch shoot hold that wrestlers use. David Crockett would mark out totally. <laughs> oh my God, he's put him in a sugar hold. Do you see that? And of course, David knows that because he's a former wrestler. But I, I think David's personality on camera was very different than his brother's. And so when, when Jimmy would come out, 
I think he had an air of seriousness. He came across well as a businessman. He looked good in a suit. I totally bought him as believable as the, I don't know, uh, exasperated owner of the company who would just shake his head at the devious nature of like the four horsemen, but you know, he's a businessman. I, I thought he was good at, at putting that vibe out. What say ye, Seth? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things an announcer needs to be able to do in my book, and it's why I will still defend people like Don West, the years he worked for Impact, a mm-hmm. good commentator, especially a color commentator, should be very excited about the product and just kind of have that vibe. This might be making it a little grandiose more than than what I mean, but I think they should have that vibe of if they could be anywhere in the world, they'd be right here at ringside calling this great action for you fans. That's what a... Well, they're, they're a salesman. A, and yeah. I don't want to buy a car from a salesman who doesn't sound very excited about the car he's trying to sell, right? Me, right, right. But when speaking about the success here, we talk about essentially the southeast corner of the United States being now the Crockett Territory. Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas. You know, we were talked earlier about how Knoxville was kind of its own little thing in the Tennessee Territory. He'd bled over into that market, too. Right. Because there was, I think it was an 83 or 84, Blackjack, Mulligan, and Flair had bought the Knoxville Territory from, I think, John Kazana, who was a longtime promoter there, and were not successful in running it as a territory. So I think, if I remember right, Jim Jumer stepped in and bought that out too, which, right. once again, it, it, it makes sense. It's, it's a budding on his territory. Asheville, North Carolina, which was a successful town for the Crockett's for years, going back to his father's days, is in the mountains of North Carolina, western North Carolina. It is part of the Greenville, Spartanburg, Anderson, Asheville TV market. Well, the next market over is the Knoxville, Johnson City, Bristol. So it's the next t- TV market over. You know what I'm saying? So right. once again, it just makes sense. And and I, I, I think Jim Jr. was a smart businessman in the sense that he took risk, but he wasn't going to go out too far. It's not as big a risk for a guy who was successfully running the Carolinas to buy territories that border on him in Georgia and Tennessee. And then after that, Florida, because Florida borders on Georgia. It's a lot different than Vince being based out of New York and saying, I'm going to go to L.A. and run. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. But as far as success goes, in just the southeast corner of the U.S., Crockett Promotions, according to Dave Meltzer, went from 800,000 tickets sold in, in, in a year, 1984 approximately, to by the end of 1985, they had sold 1.9 million tickets. That's mm-hmm. not dollars. That's tickets. That's a higher number of tickets than WWE was drawing on a national level with Hogan. Think about right. that for a minute. That that southeast area was outdrawing Vince, who was in all the other points, so to speak. So that, that right. just really goes to show you how big it was back then. So we've got, basically, we're talking about southern Ohio, Cincinnati area, Baltimore, south to Florida, and over into eastern Tennessee and Georgia. That's it. I think at this point they were starting to run Chicago too. You could speak to that better than I could. Yes, but uh, I remember. I remember Chicago being always being a big market for the Crockets in this era. But I think where Chicago was situated, it was like a, a essentially a border town. Right. And you know this better than I do. Chicago has always been a wrestling. Yes. Y'all don't care what the promotion is. You just want to see wrestling in Chicago. Right, and it's also very heel friendly. And back in these days. We're talking about it essentially being lead over territory, not only for Crockett at this time, 
potentially, but also for Vergani and the AWA. There was a lot of AWA yeah, and even, in Chicago and as well. This was running there successfully as well. That's mm-hmm. how big a whenever I try to to relate to fans how much of a wrestling town Chicago is, I mention the fact that in nineteen sixty one that the Nature Boy Buddy Rogers beat Pat O'Connor for the NWA world title in Chicago at the old Comiskey Park. And I think mm-hmm. up until WrestleMania three, wasn't that the biggest gate for a wrestling show ever in North America? I think so, but so no matter which way years, you slice that record stood. it. Yeah. So almost 2 million tickets alone in 1985 and then going into 1986, this is the year that essentially people look at as being like the best year for the company from an oh, entertainment yeah. standpoint. But it's also kind of when the business had went from skyrocketing to kind of plateauing almost. I, think. I don't think it oh. petered off yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in 1986 is also where the success, the money essentially is, is over the hill and kind of heading down. So right. I think this is the early days of what Jim Jr. would later talk about as bad business. Mm-hmm. He was living high on the hog. They were making money hand over fist. But to do so required him to be running a inordinate amount of shows well vince was too at that point vince was literally running seven days a week often double shots on the weekend he was just working his talent to death and so was so was crockett and like i said crockett had returned to that earlier model where he was running two towns a night often but this was with an ever-expanding geographical footprint so you you just do the math into uh the amount of money it took to start running shows that far apart on the same night and not just in the sense of payroll ring crew rings building rental that kind of stuff but this is also around the same time that crockett had bought a second airplane obviously they'd had an airplane earlier on because that was a that was a private jet that in 74 when when valentine and flair had the plane wreck david was on that flight as well and correct me uh, if i'm they wrong had, uh, Vin, even vince wasn't using private jets at this point not yet not that i yeah. know of but the Crockett's had bought another one shortly after the wreck in 74. Well, now they're buying a second one because with them spreading out, Jim Jr.'s thinking, well, I, I need to get my top guys to the buildings as soon as possible. And I can actually run two towns really far apart, one as an afternoon matinee and then one in the evening and get my top talent on both those shows if I have a jet. That was his mindset. And he's spending money buying the, these dying territories like Florida and it's not long after this, in early 87, that he purchases the Mid-South Territory from Bill Watts, the UWF. Right. And Bill Watts, we've talked about it before, Bill Watts wasn't like Fritz von Erich. Fritz von Erich lost his territory simply because Fritz lost control of his, of his locker room and his talent started dying young. Let's be honest, right? Some of them his own family. But Bill's territory was dying simply because that area of the country is completely and utterly predicated upon the oil industry, and there was an oil bust at that time. It is a common misconception that it was business was down because of WWE essentially running in and running in and out. It wasn't that. It, it was Ooh. completely unrelated to the wrestling business. Yeah, it was completely unrelated. to the, And Bill, I think I brought up before when I've talked about this, Bill also, if you look at the time frame, his sons were starting to enter college and play football. Bill had been in the business a long time. He was burned out. He was looking for taking time off. And there was a lot of people will say this is the beginning of the downfall for Jim Jr. He was so being pushed by Vince because of Vince's national expansion and wanting to keep up with him that by this point, Bill had also not only was running Oklahoma and Arkansas, he was dipping down into Texas as well. 
encroaching on Fritz's territory and how to deal with Paul Bosch. But like we said, this this market's dying by no fault of Bill Watts. That's the oil bust. And Bill wants to take time off. Crockett takes some bad advice. And, and I hate to speak ill of the dead, but I think some of this is Dusty giving him this advice because Dusty is his booker. And Jimmy's listened to book. Why wouldn't you? Dusty has just booked you the most year and a half of successful business you've ever seen. In the words of Alan Sherman, bad advice costs just as much as good advice. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I, as around this time, also there began to be a schism in the locker room, and the the closest that Flair and Jimmy Junior had had for years was starting to wane, and Dusty was now buddy buddies with Jim Junior, and so that's never good when you got this that kind of three way going between your the promoter and your two top stars, and one of one of whom happens to be the Booker. You can right. see how this could be a recipe for disaster. Right, you know, especially uh, since we, you know, we were talking about all the business they were doing and all the business Vince was doing everywhere else. Vince did try mm-hmm. to run uh, in Greensboro as well. and which uh, That we, didn't work. Yeah, which <laughs> we're talking about 10,000 or so fans for the Crockett Run shows. Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant in a house show at Greensboro drew 3,600 people. And Andre was a huge star. To go back to that U.S. title tournament we talked about where Harley went over Paul Jones in the finals. Mm-hmm. I think Andre was on that show. Andre hmm. was a fairly regular in the big, the big yearly shows. At, 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 you know, Andre so, was a draw down here. So yeah, yeah that's just the same yeah. year, pretty much right around the same time. They're breaking attendance records for WrestleMania and such. They're doing basically one third of the business Crockett was doing in the same building. Yeah, like I said, you, back to the the mid the mid south territory. You've got Bill wanting to get out, wanting to sell. And Crockett had been doing business with Bill Watts on, on a partnership for a couple of years doing the, the G- Jim Crockett Sr. Memorial Tag Team Cups, which had, was on its second year in 87. And it was at the meetings for those that Jim Ross notoriously brokered the deal, speaking for Bill with Jim to buy the territory. Many people say the territory was dying and had Jim just been patient and waited it out, he could have swooped in and just taking the territory over with no resistance whatsoever. Yeah, just pick up the scraps. He could pick up the, the stars he wanted, Sting and, and Rotunda and the guys he earned. No, one Rotunda at the time. Sting, Steiner, Eddie Gilbert, those guys, the Freebirds. Not taking uh, the guys he Steve didn't Williams, want. Steve Williams, yeah. Yep, and then broker his own deal with the television markets in that area. But by buying it when he did, and many people said it was because Dusty, because by that point, Bill Watts had bought a huge, like million-dollar office complex in Dallas that was like like the, the new cutting edge for business office space. And many say that Dusty liked the idea of returning home to Texas as the conquering hero. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I'm, I'm just going to make a gaming or, or even video gaming analogy here. I, I'm not saying that I think they were right or anything like that. I think this is just kind of the mindset, so to speak. We just talked about how they were out draw, drawing vince in the greensboro shows so maybe they thought kind of they could fortify around all of these areas that they're running so that mm. maybe they bought those up in the sense of okay now now we're part of that territory and the people love us and they mm. uh, jim won't do or uh, vince won't do as well around here and of course that turned out right. to not be the case yeah so jim makes a bad decision in my opinion and Jim would later on in his life admit it was a bad decision and buy Bill Watts out right then instead of waiting it out. And by buying it, he also accrued all of Bill Watts' debts, which included the rent on this huge office complex. And he doesn't have a relationship with the television markets like Bill Watts did. So he's having to, on some of them, 
very quickly remake television deals, and it's not to his advantage. And then to compound his his troubles, Houston's obviously a big market that Bill's running in. Well, remember, refer back to what I said earlier about how the old school NWA promoters were not that big on Jim Jr. They didn't trust him, right? Well, one of those would be Paul Bosch in Houston. He does not like Jim Jr. for whatever reason and still doesn't. And he hears about this sale of Bill Watts' territory to Jim Jr. And he says, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with Jim Jr. And immediately calls Vince and says, hey, Houston's your town now. I'm going to deal with you because I'd rather deal with you than I would with Jim Jr. So that had to be a crushing blow, too, to lose a market in the middle of your territory. As a matter of fact, from a historical standpoint, it is that move of Bosch going with Vince instead of Jim Jr. when Crockett buys out UAWF that precipitates the Bruce Pritchard move up to Connecticut and becoming a sponsor of Vince because he was working for Bosch at the time. So when you look at things from a historical standpoint, that's a pretty big thing overall. It's, it's important to Vince's national expansion. It's important to P- Pritchard, who was another very important business insider for the next 30 years and where his trajectory goes. It is a blow to what was, like you said, the number two promotion in the business at the time. That one move is almost seismic in its magnitude. Wouldn't you agree when you look yeah. at all that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you factor in all these promotions getting bought mm-hmm. then you see, he essentially wound up with an area too big for him to cover financially yep and right and he's still running the private jets still going cross country and, and, and such to, yeah and to make it even worse he decides that jim jr decides pronouns pal it to decides i'm going to move to dallas i'm paying the rent on this million dollar office complex i might as well be running out of there so him and dusty so now you've got the promoter and the booker away from their home in Charlotte. And and David's back in Charlotte running a lot of the business. So you've got the owner and the promoter away from their home base in Dallas, but everybody else is a corporate office. People are still in Charlotte. David's running the business end. He's got the corporate credit card, the accountants, the front office ladies. They're still in this little tiny converted convenience store on Briarbend in Charlotte that had been the business company, the offices for 25 years. They're still there, but Dusty and Jim Jr. are in Dallas in this million-dollar complex. This is also not good when you're mm-hmm. splitting up the corporate structure. Extra overhead. Yeah, and then you've got David's said before there are, there are times like, you know, they they would need money right away, and they were so mismanaged, he would take out the corporate American Express card, and it would, and it would bounce. Literally, <laughs> <He's> <laughs> like, it's empty. It's, it, 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 you haven't paid your bill yet. That's how crazy, you know, and, and then Jim – at Dusty's egging on decides we're going to continue this man they start trying to run Vegas and LA and the west coast and these areas that Vince has already successfully moved into even though the territories from that the old NWA territories have died so now they're adding more expense he's like well we got the private jet we'll just fly the guys out and for whatever reason I don't know the history of cable television Turner Broadcasting TBS was not on as many markets on the West Coast cable markets as USA with Vince was. So not, their television wasn't even as strong. So they're trying to run these towns and they're spending money hand over fist on these private jets. The corporate offices have been split. And you just said it yourself. It seems like this is the point where essentially their territory is geographically too big for what they're able to handle. And this all essentially leads to, I believe I brought up before, that famous day where Sandy Scott, who was working in the office, George Scott's brother, 
and he was in the offices in Charlotte. He comes out of his office ghost white and tells Tony Schiavone, we're a million dollars in the hole. What? Yeah. <laughs> He'd gone to the accountant's office and they literally were like a million dollars in the hole. How do you go from, like you said, almost two million in ticket sales and two years later, you're a million bucks in the hole? Yeah. Yeah. And I think another factor that a lot of people put into this is the buying out of Watts because all those people you were talking yes. about, Sting, I think Terry Taylor was part of that. Freebirds, I think maybe One Man Gang was there at that time. But what you know, Doctor Death. Mm-hmm. But what I'm getting at is, as people that know the history of that buyout, instead of essentially running the two areas, like they're each areas, or basically making the Mid-South people look credible, he did the exact opposite. He essentially jobbed out all the Mid-South guys, and really the only guys that stayed for the most part that got pushes were Sting and, and Rick Steiner. Uh, Doc for a while. Oh, yeah, Dr. Then Death, Doc, yeah. Then Doc got tired of him when to Japan. Mm-hmm. But Jim Ross says he sold Jimmy on the idea that they could run it to two separate territories and then have an annual big show that was like a Super Bowl of wrestling. David Crockett has said multiple times and has heat with Jim Ross that Jim Ross lied to us and he, and he worked him. Me personally, and I have no proof one way or the other, just knowing at varying levels the personalities of all those involved, I think Jim Ross probably did sell Jimmy on that. And I think Jimmy believed that was a good idea, but Dusty worked him. And Dusty had that old school mentality I've spent all this time getting my guys over and and making fans think my guys were the top guys. I don't care how good these guys are coming. I'm not going to put my guys under to them. I'll make my guys look strong. And he did. And in the process, kill what could have been a golden goose. Right. And and this is, what, about 15 years before the WCW buyout. And Mm -hmm. a lot Mm -hmm. of similarities, really. Yeah. And so, I mean, if you look at it, that's just wrestlers. And you, if you listen to any of our podcasts, from the past on Classic Wrestling Memories, you will know, you will find no bigger fans of the booking of Dusty Rhodes than Seth and myself. But this was a very large tactical error by Dusty Rhodes, in my opinion. I don't speak ill of his booking often, but I quote Dumbledore from Harry Potter when he tells Harry one time, Harry's like, well, you were wrong. Dumbledore basically says, well, the thing about being right so often is that when you those few times you are wrong, it's usually big and bad. I think that's true with Dusty's booking. Dusty's booking yeah. was so good so often that when he made bad decisions, it was really bad. <laughs> really and, stood and, out, yeah. And three of the biggest I can think of are this burying of the UWF, that same year, just how mis- misbooked the, the Starcade was. From having the, the Road Warriors do the job for... The screw finish in Chicago, the mismanagement of the Ronnie Garvin world title run, and then last of the Chamber of I think those are the mm-hmm. three biggest. And we've actually talked about all those things in past episodes. But those right. are three examples of Dusty's. And like I had said earlier, Jim Jimmy was completely willing to follow Dusty to the gates of hell because Dusty had booked him into the most successful place he'd ever been financially. And so it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And, and and this this old crap we're a million dollars in the hole we're out of money this is when the other sibling francis and jackie and david and jim jr are like start considering well maybe we need to send our own feelers out and see if somebody wants to buy us because yeah. we're hurting right and dolores who was their mother that's uh, big jim's wife was still alive and my understanding is that both david and and Jim Jr. were reluctant to sell. They thought, right. well, we can just 
refocus, kind of draw back from the crazy book, booking so far away from our, our core audience, trim some of the fat, and just get back on, on board and take, take Vince on head on. But it was Francis and Jackie who kind of first got David on board, and then they all went to Jim Jr. and said, no, put your ego down. This is our father's legacy, and more importantly, this is our mother's retirement. And they, they, yeah, they played the mom card, right? <laughs> because I think it was David used the term, uh, basically had to drag me kicking and screaming into selling. Right, right. But it was, it was they played the mom card. Mm-hmm. And so all right. of them, including Jim Jr. and David, got on board and said, you know what? We need to sell. So they were able to, to broker a deal with Ted Turner. And in that deal, all of them were going to maintain some type of job within the Turner company. Right. And there was a big check that was going to go to their mother, which I think about it, at that point, Dolores probably had to be what in her seventies or maybe early eighties. Everybody's got a mom. You can understand wanting to make sure your mom is financially taken care of in her last days. Can't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that, that leads to 89 Turner buying it out. And you want to talk about what happened then and where Jim and the rest of the Crockett's went at that point. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the reasons why they sold in the first place was because Jim Jr. believed that he was essentially going to have the manager position. He'd, be, he'd still be yes. able to control who got hired, who got fired, who's going to run the TV and such. So maybe that's one of the reasons why he agreed to sell. I'm not, I'm not saying that as a fact. I'm just saying it's possible that's what was going through his mind. But we all know the history. And anybody who knows the history this time can tell that Turner did not do that. They, they hired a man named Jack Petrick to essentially Petrick. handle the business. And, and he's the guy who hired Jim Hurd. And of course, Jim Hurd had no experience with wrestling before this point. His grand total of experience, he was a St. Louis guy that had worked at a television station that produced the old Sant Mushnick wrestling at the Chase Show. Okay, you knew Luthez and Sam Mushnick. I'm impressed. It doesn't yeah. <laughs> make you a wrestling promoter. And I think anybody who's been involved in a, in a buyout or a selling, I know I've, I'm going through this at my job right now as we speak. The promises made by the people that are buying keeping positions of title to the people that used to run it, that never happens, does it? Ever? Yeah, yeah. it's always the rose-colored glasses and this partnership uh-huh. will bring us to new heights and this and that and unlimited rice pudding. And yeah. Well, I, I think David Crockett put it best when he's like, we, all of us, myself, my brothers, my sister, realized very quickly after the sale that this was no longer a mom-and-pop business, that we were now part of a, of a large corporation and we were just a division within that corporation. Right. And this is one thing I remember Jerry Jarrett saying about the uh, Turner suits and such. He said that Vince built a corporation around his wrestling, and you're trying to fit wrestling into a corporate hole, and it's just not going to work. You've heard me say, I will die on this. I've said it here. I've said it on the Wrestling Brother, and I've said it on the old A1 Wrestling Podcast. Wrestling is not supposed to be corporate. It's just not. It is not meant to be, and it never will work at its highest levels when it is. That's my opinion. Fight me on it. At me. That's just how I feel. I think this is one of the reasons why I feel that way. (laughs) Right. And Tony Schiavone says it all the time on his own podcast. We went from being a wrestling company to a television company and a division of a television company at that. And he's not wrong. Right. But to give you an idea about building the corporation around wrestling, one of the things that her did the following year was he fired George Scott. And this is the reason supposedly that George Scott got fired. It was because he was promoting a clash of the champions card with Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat. 
because you know, this is about the time that classic feud was going on. Some would say, like, one of the best feuds ever booked. And Heard fired the guy that's booking it because he was promoting a match that was free on TV, and then that, but that means that people wouldn't go to the house shows. Which I actually do. I actually think Heard's right there mm-hmm. because okay. hey, let me tell you why. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna publicly step on your toes here, Seth. Seth is very, 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 very much a fan of George Scott and his mm-hmm. so much so that if you go back to our Booking 101 episode, I believe George Scott was one of your picks for for one of your top bookers yes. of all time. Yeah. I believe his run in the 70s was great. I also think, and it's because I know I have knowledge about what was going on there that you don't. George was successful because he had some really creative guys working for him, and he was smart enough not to get in their way and let them book their own stuff. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. And you have to talk the history of what all went into that George Scott coming on on the first place. This is the time when Dusty was still booking. He was given the edict by Turner people. And he couldn't go to Jim and say, hey, Jim, like he had before, no blood. And then Dusty in his, oh, you can't tell me what to do attitude, goes the next week after that memo goes out. And what does he book? Dangle where he gets stabbed in the eye by right. an animal and bleeds like a stuck pig. So Dusty gets fired. And what was it? Two months later, he's on Vince's television and the polka dots. Mm-hmm. Right. And that and as that was what necessitated bringing back. Ole had the book for a while. They are going back to guys. And I don't know how much of this it was Jimmy's suggestion or not, but they're going back to guys that they had had success with in the company before, Ole and now George Scott. And George, not only do I think, in my opinion, I mean, I'm not going to tell you, you have your opinion of what he did in the 70s. Not only do I think his, his booking was overrated for what he did in the 70s because it was more the guys he had. Now, once again, there is, there is something to be said for being a smart enough booker to stay out of the way of your talent. You need to temper what your ideas are with what your talent is going to be able to pull off and what they're comfortable with. Right? right, and I think George is good at that. Hide the negatives and accentuate the positives. Yeah, exactly. I do think George was still stuck in 1975, though, and he just had a lot bigger purse strings to do it with uh, with Turner's purse strings, like bringing back the Iron Sheet, who we all know was well past his prime at the could barely move. And it's I think this also shines a light on what we just talked about with television company versus wrestling company. George Scott came from that old school. Where and he's not wrong here. George is right. the The revenue generator at that point was the house shows, which is why the almost million dollars in ticket sales in eighty five, eighty six is so impressive because that was your main revenue generator back then. Pay per view hadn't really started yet, and it was it was just very much in its infancy at this point in eighty nine. And even TV wasn't paying that much back then. No, if no. Anything, you, this is this is still before. You were selling ad revenue. You were actually mm-hmm. selling your tea syndicated to local market. So you're still your main revenue generator was the live gates. And there was this mentality, like I said, it's not that wrong, that you don't give away for free on television what people will pay to see at a show live. And that was George Scott's point of view. What George didn't understand, and I will give Jim Heard this is that the business was changing and changing rapidly, and you were now part of a television. So at this point, you are actually going to make more money putting a match like that on a television show than you are worried about selling it to a live crowd and worried about the gate. So I think this is an example of just how much the business was changing and changing rapidly. And I believe after George Scott's firing, no, 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 no. Before George was brought in, or maybe it was Ole was brought in before George, there was a brief time after Dusty got fired that I believe Jim Jr. was the booker for like three or four months until they could hire somebody, wasn't he? That sounds about right. I want to say he like finished out the year, and he even even said 
I think that was like late 89. He even said, the, told the talent in a, like a locker room meeting, I'm not going to be the booker. I'm not a creative genius. I know what Dusty has lined up. I'm just going to finish it out until we get hired, somebody else hired. And to Jim Jr.'s credit, I think this speaks to his 20 years as a promoter and being around George Scott in the 70s and Dory Jr. and Dusty and the bookers. I think that their house show business actually did go up those last three months he was booking <laughs> for what it's worth. So right. that's and I, that, that's, that says something. But it was also around this time with all the – I think Flair had a shot for a while as the booker, and they did the committee for a while that was like Cordette and Heyman, and I think Gilbert was involved for a little while, you know. Yeah. It wasn't this around the time that Jim either got fired by, uh, by, by Turner or just said, you know, I'm out. I think it was about this time, and I think Jim Barnett was also one of those people on the committee as well. Well, yeah, he probably boy. was. We, we, Jim, believe me, Jim Barnett was never going to take a chance not to have some power, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it was around this time that I believe Jim Jim Crockett Jr. was like, "Well, I, I'm a wrestling guy. I'm going to try to run." And he, he's still living in Dallas. He's not yet he moved back to Charlotte. He decides to try to to try to start this ill-fated project called uh, what World Wrestling Network WWN. I believe Sounds that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking what, what, what 90, 91 around there. Is that when he started this? See, this is after because uh, there. Were, I, I remember there was a no compete. I think when he sold, right? Right, right. He didn't do it right away. He didn't do it right away. Right. right. So, so, so that whenever he whenever he left, I think it was around the same time that that if I remember right, that that Heyman got fired, and so now him and Heyman decide to get together and out of Dallas try to run this World Wrestling Network. Is that correct? Yeah, 90, yeah. I, I, I say? Sounds about right. Again, again, just kind of going from memory here. And I don't ever remember. Did they ever even have a television show or anything? I can't remember. I don't think so. Because this would have been before Heyman was uh, doing the ECW thing, if I, if I recall correctly. Oh, yeah. He, he didn't take ECW until like 94. This was even before he had gone back to WCW and uh, the Dangerous Alliance. So I, I, I think and I'm very fuzzy on this part of Jim Jr.'s history. But I think the WWN probably comparable to Jarrett's attempts at global wrestling force or global mm-hmm. force wrestling had a name had people that people knew in the wrestling business tied to it had some grand ideas but it never really if i remember right in fact i wouldn't even be surprised if global force actually even did a little bit more because i think global force did have at least one television taping you know yeah yeah they they had some measure of shows but i think they're mainly on uh on the internet and it was at that, about that point i think that's when junior just completely stepped away from the wrestling business altogether so we're talking like 92, 93, probably at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the world wrestling network fell, fell through and they're just by that time, WWE was the only game in town and WCW hadn't yet reached the heights that it, that it would. <laughs> and even that was temporary. And I don't rem- I vaguely remember I was obviously the beginning of my wrestling career and I was focused just on getting booked and wasn't really worried about the politics. Wasn't there a time in the late 90s when wrestling was like really, really hot? So EGW was on pay-per-view. The Monday Night Wars were going full steam, and they were go back and forth. That Jim Jock Crockett Jr. popped up yet again with that whole kerfluffle about the NWA name being reinvigorated, and he tried to like buy it and, and start a promotion yet again. Do you remember anything around that? I, for some reason, I recall that, like 97, 98. Oh, uh, I don't, th- I'm not recalling anything offhand, but I was not uh, really paying attention to anything outside of WCW at the time. So it kind of happened um, and, I, and I forgot about it. Yeah, I think, no, actually it was a little early. I think it was like 95. And I think he was trying to run like the Sportatorium, which was also the place he had tried to run for the rest World Wrestling Network. Because that's uh, the venue after, that uh, World Class Pettis- ran in, That would right? be shortly after Petticino and the Global 
wrestling had moved out of there. Okay. Yeah, but that was the same area that Fritz ran uh, mm-hmm. world class around, basically, right? Yeah, Dallas. Yeah, Dallas. Poetorium was where he right. in Dallas. Because like I said, Jim didn't come back to Charlotte. He stayed in Dallas. And it was after that, I think Jim just said to heck with the wrestling business and got involved in real estate, got his realtor license there in Texas. And Oh, well, this was pretty successful. And I, I that shouldn't shock anybody. As bad of business decisions as he, he made in the 90s when he was at his apex, we talked about he was a successful businessman and entrepreneur before he kind of had the promotion thrust on him because of the actions of his former brother-in-law. So, And, and whether it's intentional or not, Texas, my understanding is real estate is huge in Texas because of the people that want to move there, warm all year round and all that stuff. Yeah, tax is good there, exactly. And I cannot remember when his health started to take ill, but I do believe he moved back to the Charlotte area eventually, like in the later 2000s. And I don't, I don't, I I remember hearing personally, I want to say 17, 18, 2017, 2018, there was starting to be rumors in in locker rooms and amongst old timers. Well, I've heard Jim Jr.'s not health, not doing so good. And then I believe David came out publicly a few months before his brother's death and said, yeah, he, Jim's like an assisted living. Did he not? And then it wasn't long after that, maybe like two months later, Jim, we had lost Jim finally to like kidney failure. Yeah, I think he was on dialysis for a while, and I mm-hmm. think COVID was part of it as well. So, yeah, David, I remember yeah. saying that he had COVID, but he had recovered from it. But obviously, that probably it is with the comorbidities involved with COVID. That couldn't have that probably weakened his system, I would think, wouldn't you? Yeah, and I believe it was his own choice, essentially, rather than live off of the machine. He was just like, okay, why don't you just unplug me? Right. Fortunately for us fans, when Jimmy left the wrestling business and went to reality, he just was not one of these guys like his brother or Shivani that had stepped away but would still do shoot interviews and stuff. But right before his untimely death, and I don't know if it's untimely, he was 73, he was able to do a long sit-down interview with Conrad Thompson. And for the first time ever, we as people either outside of the business at the time or that weren't working for the company at the time, got to hear Jim Jr.'s point of view on a lot of the stuff we've gone over in this episode. The history of how he got to, why he made the decisions he made. And that's, I don't want to say a fairy tale ending, but how many people get to get get that kind of ending where they get to tell their, end of the st- their side of the story right there at the end of their life? Not very often. At the very least, you could call it poetic. Yes, yes. And I, I have not seen that. I think it's over three hours long. But I, I've heard from many people in the business, it's fast. It's a fascinating. And that even as sick as Jimmy was, he's still very with it. I'm assuming you have yet, yet watched any of that, that, that interview either, have you? No, I haven't. I, I keep meaning to purchase it and just life gets in the way, I guess. But yeah, sooner or later, I'm going to sit down and watch it. Now, I know he did do one shoot interview, I want to say, in the early 2000s with like RF or Sean Oliver or somebody of that ilk. Or maybe it was for Vince of WWE, where he famously said, I, I made, I was a bad business. I made bad business. That's why we went under. You like to quote that interview all the time. Was that, what was that? That was for oh, one of Vince's. Yeah, it was, it? it was in the rise and fall of WCW. And it has that quote. And it also has the quote of Vince talking about Big Jim and how much. His dad, Vince Sr., respected Big Jim, and you know, I think anybody who knows anything about Vince McMahon knows that he tends to respect the same people that his father did. So, so he, isn't he it crazy him, that fathers liked each other, but then the sons became bitter enemies? Yeah. But <laughs> That's I think, kind of ironic. Yeah, the, the verbiage I think that Vince used was he was a good promoter and just a good man. So. Yeah. 
you know, like I said, it's rare. You got that one interview you did for, for, for Vince, but it's just so rare that a person, especially someone of, of such – excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, historical significance as Jim Crockett Jr., who there's a lot of questions about his life because he hasn't done anything public or talked about it in 20 years, finally decides to do it, and then we lose him just a few you know weeks later. So obviously, like I said at the top of the episode, hugely influenced by Jim Crockett. I, I, I echo your sentiments 110%, Seth. You cannot tell the story of professional wrestling without talking about Crockett promotions in general, but Jim Crockett Jr. in particular. I, I do not think it's hyperbole or, un, or overstatement to say Jim Crockett Jr. was legitimately one of the five most important people in all of professional wrestling in the last 40 years. You don't think that's hyperbolic at all, do you? I agree 100%. So I'll, I, I said in my, my tribute to him on my, on my personal Facebook when he passed, uh, eternally grateful to he and his whole family in ways I'll never be able to repay because of all the entertainment they brought me and the path that they led me down as an adult into the wrestling business. They are very directly involved and responsible for aspects. He's, he's a bit of a mysterious uh, individual because he wasn't a performer. And he did kind of have a very level personality when he was on camera. So we don't know as much about him as we do all these other personalities in wrestling. But it doesn't underscore, I think, his importance. He legitimately had, you know, ran neck and neck with Vince McMahon in the early days of the national expansion. He took his uh, a family-run territory that had been a successful territory for 30, 40 years switched the paradigm to a singles promotion and l- became the Cadillac of the territories. And wrestling is not what we know today without Jim Crockett. He may not have been the most outspoken or charismatic, but that, I don't think that changes what he did behind the scenes. I'll always be grateful to Jim Jr. and what he did because of what all the things I just talked about. And I just he seemed to me to just be like his dad, a decent guy. And in a business that has a lot of people that don't fit that description, that's a nice thing to know. I remember what Ric Flair had written on his social media. And this is one of those things a lot of celebrities have people that run their social media. But this is one of those things I think you can tell that this is coming from Rick himself. Mm. And he says, I moved to Charlotte in 1974 with $150 in my pocket. Jimmy Crockett was my friend and my boss. I can't put into words how much he did for me and my career. His influence and persistence helped me become the world champion. My thoughts and prayers are with the Crockett family. That sounds like that's directly from Rick. Rick wrote that. Rick wrote that. So I obviously, being an independent wrestler here based in the Carolinas, growing up watching these guys and then getting to know a lot of these guys in my career, I cannot think, including Tully Blanchard, ever saying tremendously bad things about Jim Crockett Jr. That there might have been some things that some guys said personality wise, but unfair businessman, bad payoffs, none of that was ever talked. I've, I've only heard what he his word was good. If he gave you his word, it was good. If his payoffs were good, and I dare say it, of course I'm biased. And you can put a lot of this on the talent. You can put a lot of it on Dusty, who was the booker. I dare say the run from 85 to the start to tail off in 87 around the UWF buyout might be the most solidly booked, entertaining wrestling outside of maybe a few things in Japan we've ever seen in American wrestling, ever. 
there's some other times in Memphis, AWA, maybe some of the Attitude Era, I would put on that level. But I mm-hmm. think that run of Jim Crockett buying the Georgia territory in the time slot until the eventual starting to downfall with Stark at 87. That two-year run, that's about to move as wrestling is going to get from top to bottom. What say ye? I think you're right because it's one of those things, I've, I've said it before, at least off mic, that that's one of my regrets as a wrestling fan is that I didn't really find it on the dial until around 1990. I, mm-hmm. I wish I could have started a few years earlier because it sounds like stuff I would have kept right up on because of mm-hmm. how dramatic it was. And I'm sure I, I would have watched uh, WWE as well because, like any kid, I loved Hulk Hogan in the 80s. So, sure, sure. You know, but but I do th- I I do think like I said you can talk about the talent you can talk about Dusty at the end of the day Jim Crockett Jr. he was the captain of that ship yeah Dusty was his first mate and he had a great support but it's it it all eventually he went down with the ship and took the blame when that happened so you've got to give him the credit for for the good times too is what I'm saying exactly yeah I don't think I could have said that any better once again I know it's it's been removed now a few weeks. But my condolences to the Crockett family. The fact that their father's foundation is still going and that they're still helping out veterans, Jim Crockett Jr. and the whole, just good people. Yeah. I do think there is stuff that Jim Crockett Jr. promoted that even 30 years from now, people getting into wrestling are still probably going to look at for educational purposes. I think that's probably the, the best thing I could say. So. Well put. well put. That is going to wrap up this edition of Classic Wrestling Memories, uh, and we certainly want to hear your feedback. We can be found at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. Classic Wrestling Memories is also on our Facebook page. If, if you're hearing us for the first time, you can do a search for us. We're on all the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. And uh, let us know if there's something you want to hear us talk about. Let us know what we're doing well. You can give us a review, give us a follow. Because I always appreciate feedback, especially when it's genuine. And Train, if anybody wants to talk to you about wrestling or anything we've talked about here, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at crazytrain underscore JB. That, of course, is my, um, my, my handle pretty much across all social media platforms. And I've got just about everything but TikTok, because why would I have TikTok? But a uh, little side note, last week I did a actual video podcast something that we don't do here uh one of my wrestling friends uh, jason willis uh is a former manager and referee and he has his own show aptly called the willis show uh, no seth not gary coleman uh oh. <laughs> todd bridges from different yeah, no no different strokes uh. Uh, yeah but um it is actually about two hours long i think he split it into two parts if you just look up the willis w-i-l-l-i-s show on youtube you will find his interview with uh, myself. Uh, it is fairly wrestling-centric. We kind of briefly go over uh, the three unpopular opinions that I had that we did, what was it, about a year ago? We did that podcast two years ago. Sounds about right, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and so you can hear those again in abbreviated form and also hear some things that we don't, I don't talk about, at least here on this podcast very often, kind of how I got in the business, who trained me, uh, there's a Puerto Rico story on there for my, my, my tour of Puerto Rico, a dusty story. I think I've told before, but it was years ago. So there is a lot of classic wrestling on that particular podcast. I know, uh, date, uh, Jason would love for you to look it out, uh, look it up. And, uh, once again, the Willis show, uh, just his discussion with myself with crazy train. There's two parts. Um, uh, and that along with anything else we've said today, 
let us know what you think. Uh, we're always open to your opinions, um, uh, especially about Jim Crockett Jr. and and the Crockett promotion in the 80s. We cover that heavily because it's personal to me. But once again, thanks for listening, and that's the best way to reach me. Absolutely. So I will definitely uh, at least link uh, the interview in the show notes uh, for this episode since this is volume 37 or volume 38. No, 37, 37, I think. I'll get that right. Wow, we have done a lot for years, <laughs> yeah. haven't we? <laughs> but, uh, so uh, at the very least, I'll link that uh, podcast, that interview there, so it'll make it easier for our, our listeners to a- access. So, all right, we're sure. going to shut things down here in the Classic Wrestling Memories studio here, and we will talk to you folks again next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.